Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. And let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this evening. Thank you for all the ways you've blessed us today that have gone unnoticed and unthanked. Thank you for the mercy that you have upon us and the ways that we've turned away from you, the ways we've neglected you. And we thank you, Lord, for loving us enough, despite all of that, to desire to come to us and make yourself known to us once again tonight through your word. And so we pray, God, that especially as we reflect on this such important and beautiful reading of the Passion, that you would uh, speak to us in new ways, help us to recognize the depth of love you have for us, that you would undergo such pain to sacrifice for our sins, Lord, to die so that you could rise again, so that we could rise again with you. And so we pray tonight, Lord, our hearts, as always, would be opened, would be undistracted, unworried, and totally focused on encountering you through sacred scripture. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Remove from us any distractions, worries, or anxieties, and allow us to hear your voice tonight. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you uh, for being here this evening. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 14. Now we're going to read all the way to the end of Matthew 27. We're going to read the entire Passion account according to the Gospel of Matthew, because that is the Gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, Palm Sunday. So we're only going to read through it once. I know we normally do two times, and I know these last few weeks have been longer readings, and I stuck to two times. This is almost two whole chapters, and so I do have a limit as to how many, how many times I will uh, I'll read through a long passage. So um, a couple uh, things to be aware of. Thank you. Um, in the gospel account according to Matthew. Okay, so in all of the gospel accounts, we obviously have similar accounts of Jesus's passion, him being arrested, him uh, undergoing the, or having the last supper, being arrested, undergoing torture, being crucified, all of that. Some unique things that happen in this gospel account are that uh, we, we hear about the death of Judas after his betrayal. So pay attention to that when you hear it. We hear about Pilate's wife, Pontius Pilate's wife, and the dream she has about Jesus. We have the short scene of Pilate washing his hands of any responsibility when it comes to this particular uh, arrest and trial of Jesus. We have uh, the tombs being opened of saints after Jesus dies on the cross. And then we have the Roman seal set upon the tomb, Jesus's tomb, when he is buried. Those are five unique details that only show up in the Gospel of Matthew's account. So pay attention to those or maybe just any one of them that, that speaks to you. Everything else will probably seem very similar to the other, other gospel accounts, but that is not to say that we should not pay attention to it, because this reading, we read through this whole passage every Palm Sunday and every Good Friday in the account according to the Gospel of John on Good Friday, so that we can be reminded of why we celebrate Lent and Easter, why we are Catholic, why we are Christian at all, because of what Jesus did for us, because of what he did for us on the cross, because of the sacrifice for our sins. So... 
I ask that you enter almost into a place of reverent prayer and listening as we read through this passage, because we're only going to read through it once. And pay attention to what you notice. Pay attention to what speaks to you. Place yourself in this scene. Act as though you've never heard this before. And see how this unfolds in your mind as if you're hearing it for the first time. The story we've probably heard more than any other story in all of the Gospels um, you know, ever. Try and listen to it with fresh ears if you can. Okay, So we're just going to read once through the Passion account beginning in Matthew 26, starting in verse 14. One of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that time on, he looked for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples approached Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus said, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, my appointed time draws near. In your house, I shall celebrate the Passover with my disciples. The disciples then did as Jesus had ordered and prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And while they were eating, Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed at this, they began to say to him one after another, Surely it is not I, Lord. Jesus said in reply, He who has dipped his hand into the dish with me is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas, his betrayer, said in reply, Surely it is not I, Rabbi? He answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and giving it to his disciples said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, from now on I shall not drink this fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it with you new in the kingdom of my Father. Then, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, This night all of you will have your faith in me shaken. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be dispersed. But after I have been raised up, I shall go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him in reply, Though all may have their faith in you shaken, mine will never be. Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I should have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples spoke likewise. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, I began to feel sorrow and distress. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He advanced a little and fell prostrate in prayer, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. When he returned to his disciples, he found them asleep, 
He said to Peter, so you could not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not undergo the test. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Withdrawing a second time, he prayed again, my father, if it is not possible that this cup pass without my drinking it, your will be done. Then he returned once more and found them asleep, for they could not keep their eyes open. He left them and withdrew and prayed a third time, saying the same thing again. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand when the Son of Man is to be handed over to sinners. Get up, let us go. Look, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who had come from the chief priests and the elders of the people. His betrayer had arranged a sign with them, saying, The man I shall kiss is the one. Arrest him. Immediately he went over to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus answered him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then stepping forward, they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. And behold, one of those who accompanied Jesus put his hand to his sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its sheath, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call upon my Father, and he will not provide me at this moment with more than twelve legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled which say that I must come to pass, then it must come to pass in this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs to seize me? Day after day I sat teaching in the temple area, yet you did not arrest me. But all this has come to pass, pass that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the high priest's courtyard, and going inside, he sat down with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the entire Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward who stated, This man said, I can destroy the temple of God and within three days rebuild it. The high priest rose and addressed him, Have you no answer? What are these men testifying against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I order you to tell us under oath before the living God whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him in reply, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need have we of witnesses? You have now heard the blasphemy. What is your opinion? They said in reply, He deserves to die. Then they spat in his face and struck him, while some slapped him, saying, Prophesy for us, Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. One of the maids came over to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it in front of everyone, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. As he went out to the gate, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. 
A little later, the bystanders came over and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them. Even your speech gives you away. At that, he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, a cock crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and began to weep bitterly. When it was morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then G Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, deeply regretted what he had done. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? Look to it yourself. Flinging the money into the temple, he departed and went off and hanged himself. The chief priests gathered up the money, but said, It is not lawful to deposit this in the temple treasury, for it is the price of blood. After consultation, they used it to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why that field, even today, is called the field of blood. Then was fulfilled what had been said through Jeremiah the prophet. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of a man with a price on his head, a price set by some of the Israelites, and they paid it out for the potter's field just as the Lord had commanded me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and he questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. And when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? But he did not answer him one word, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now on the occasion of the feast, the governor was accustomed to release to the crowd one prisoner whom they wished. And at the time they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So when they had assembled, Pilate said to them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called Messiah? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed him over. While he was still seated on the, his bench, on the bench, his wife sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I suffered much in a dream today because of him. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas, but to destroy Jesus. The governor said to them in reply, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They answered, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus called Messiah? They all said, Let him be crucified. But he said, Why? What evil has he done? They only shouted the louder, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he was not succeeding at all, but that a riot was breaking out instead, he took water and washed his hands in the sight of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Look to it yourselves. And the whole people said in reply, His blood be upon us and upon our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But after he had Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus inside the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped off his clothes and threw a scarlet military cloak around him, about him. Weaving a crown out of thorns, they placed it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat upon him, and took the reed, and kept striking him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the cloak, 
dressed him in his own clothes, and led him off to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a Cyrenian named Simon. This man they pressed into service to carry his cross. And when they came to a, pl to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he had tasted it, he refused to drink. After they had crucified him, they divided his garments by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And they placed over his head the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Those passing by reviled him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, he cannot save himself. So he is the, uh, so he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. The revolutionaries who were crucified with him also kept abusing him in the same way. From noon onward, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders who heard it said, this one, the one is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran to get a sponge. He soaked it in wine and putting it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. But the rest said, wait, let us see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, rocks were split, tombs were opened, and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming forth from their tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. The centurion and the men with him who were keeping watch over Jesus feared greatly when they saw the earthquake and all that was happening. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was himself a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be handed over. Taking the body, Joseph wrapped it in clean linen and laid it in his new tomb that he had hewn in the rock. Then he rolled a huge stone across the entrance to the tomb and departed. But Mary Magdalene and the other Mary remained sitting there, facing the tomb. The next day, the one following the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that this imposter, while he was still alive, said, After three days I will be raised up. Give orders then that the grave be secured until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him and say to the people, He has been raised from the dead. This last imposture would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, The guard is yours. Go secure it as best you can. So they went and secured the tomb by fixing a seal to the stone and setting the guard. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
So quite a long passage, many events, many things maybe stood out to you. I invite you to take a few moments to look back over those things that resonated with you, that stood out, any questions that this reading inspired. And if you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what these things are. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes to share with those at your table. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to come up. There's seats here in the front at these tables if you like. And we'll share for about the next 10, 15 minutes what stood out to you, what questions you have, and we'll bring it back to the larger group. So I'm sure there are many things standing out in this very long passage. But what I would like to do is what we've done in the previous weeks um, and just kind of give a, a somewhat of a summary. I'm obviously not going to be able to do anything that conclusive for two whole, almost two whole entire chapters of Matthew. Um, but as I was kind of, you know, thinking about this, I was reflecting on this paragraph from uh, the Catechism. This is paragraph 599. And this is uh, in the section about Jesus' uh, death and in the plan of God's plan for salvation. This is what it says in the Catechism, 599. It says, Jesus' violent death was not the result of chance and an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances, but is part of the mystery of God's plan. As St. Peter explains to the Jews of Jerusalem in his first sermon on Pentecost, he says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This biblical language does not mean that those who handed him over were merely passive players in a scenario written in advance by God. But what that does mean is that God had a very distinctive, very definite plan. And even though it seems like oh, things got really out of hand, and Jesus got handed over, and why would this happen to him, and why didn't he just speak up? And he himself says, like, don't you know I could just call down, like, 12 legions of angels? I think that's a detail that's unique to Matthew as well, um, but it's one of those that often gets overlooked. That Jesus knows definitively exactly what he is doing. And I've talked about this before, but it's particularly poignant in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew is a gospel written by a Jewish author to a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. And so there are very specific pieces of information about Jewish history and culture and feast days. And during this time is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they're celebrating Passover. And if you've ever celebrated a Passover meal, you know that it's very strict. It has a manual. The youngest person asks the oldest person at the meal, why is this night different than any other night? And you go through the telling of the story of the Exodus uh, and how this was prescribed in Exodus chapter 12, all the way back in the time of Moses, about how God rescued the people from Egypt through a series of 10 plagues. And every single dish, side, dipping sauce, herb, everything is symbolic of something about that journey. And it's got a very strict script that you follow. And this had been happening for 1,200 years, at least by this time. It was well-practiced at this time. Everybody knew the Passover. Everybody knew how it went. And the Passover consists of a sharing of four different cups of wine. And the third cup of wine is called the cup of blessing. It's when you speak a very specific prayer of blessing and thanksgiving to God. And that is the cup that is shared in Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, when they're at the Last Supper. Because he says, it took this uh, it takes this cup, he gave thanks, he blessed it. This is the blood of my covenant. And so this is when the blessing happens, one of the high points in the meal. But the thing is that Jesus, after this, he ends the meal. And he changes the language of the script. This language here where he says, this is my body, take and eat. And when he says, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you now, from now on, I shall not drink this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it with you new in the kingdom of my Father. That was not in the Passover. Jesus abandoned ship, went away from the script, and everyone, every faithful Jew at that table would have been like, do you guys, does anyone want to tell him that he like totally messed up? Like it would have been really like that awkward moment, you know, when like someone, you know, a teacher spells something wrong on the whiteboard or says, the, you know, like reading the wrong reading, whatever. It would have been very awkward. Everyone would have known that this was not right. And what's interesting is after this third cup of blessing, you would pray a series of psalms, the Hallel and the Great Hallel, which are psalms, I think, like 114 to 118 and Psalm 119. And what happens is they leave and they go, to the, they go singing a hymn out to the Mount of Olives. They sing these psalms. It's as if they're continuing the Passover and this new script that Jesus is creating. And he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you new in the kingdom. I'm not going to finish this meal until it is finished new in the kingdom. And the very next time we see him drink wine is when he's about to die on the cross. And in another gospel account, right when he drinks that wine, he says, it is finished. Not just his life, but what he came to do to establish a new covenant, a new Passover. And in the Passover, you sacrifice a Passover lamb and you consume it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. There's no lamb in this meal because Jesus is the new Passover lamb. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was offering himself as the sacrifice, as the lamb of God for the new Passover sacrifice. And that it was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In the time of the Jews and all the way back in the time of the temple, there was a offering called the Todah offering. Not Tada, but a Todah offering. And that was the offering of thanksgiving. And it was unique in that it was uh, prescribed for those who had been released from slavery or who had been freed or liberated from some kind of oppressive uh, place in life. Maybe they were a slave, a servant, they were in a foreign land and they were in prison. And when you came back and you were restored to your land and to your family, you were meant to go to the temple and make a todah offering, an offering of thanksgiving. And you would offer it there and you would consume the entire offering. None of it would be left on the altar. You would consume all of it. And the rabbis said, and many believed, that when the Messiah came, every one of the sacrifices in the temple would no longer be necessary, but the only one that would remain would be the Todah offering, the Thanksgiving offering. And in Greek, Thanksgiving is Eucharistia, Eucharist. That what remains today, what we celebrate every time we gather here for Mass, is the eternal Todah offering, the Eucharist, the, the celebration of the new Passover of which Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. That's why his crucifix hangs above every altar to remind us that we are celebrating not only a wedding of God and us, of heaven meeting earth, but also a funeral, a memorial for the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. We're participating in a new Passover a new offering every time we gather together. And the language, the rubric, the Jewish imagery here shows that it is clear. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Exactly what he was doing. He came down to enter into a covenant relationship with us on our behalf because we couldn't do it on our own. We kept breaking promises after breaking promises, being unfaithful after opportunity to be faithful and losing and turning away from God over and over and over and over again throughout salvation history. So he came to make both ends of this commitment happen and celebrate a new covenant, usher in a new kingdom. And when you know all of that, you can take a step back and see the divine plan at work here. That this wasn't just an accident. This wasn't just an execution of a revolutionary. This wasn't just some oppressive regime trying to stamp out some small little movement of Christianity. This wasn't just some historical myth. This was a real intentional plan of God to rescue us 
from slavery, to liberate us and free us from the things that oppress us, so that we could come back and be restored to the people we were created to be and offer once and for all that Todah offering in the new temple of the church every time that we gather. Matthew is clear in showing this imagery, in emphasizing the rubric of the Passover, in showing that just as Moses instructed them that the death of your firstborn would come unless you take the blood of this lamb and you spread it on the doorposts of your homes, Jesus, the firstborn of God, takes our place and spreads his blood on the doorposts of the cross, offering himself as the new lamb of God, the new Passover, so that we would be free. Just as the Hebrew people were freed from enslavement in Egypt, we are freed from enslavement to sin. We are liberated. We are welcomed in, not to the promised land of Israel, but into the promised land of the kingdom of heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, when we hear this reading proclaimed on Palm Sunday, all the little cool nuanced details, the things unique to Matthew, yes, those are important. And the things that resonate with us, those are wonderful. But what we have to remember, first and foremost, is that God knows what he's doing. He's playing the long game. And he would do this for you and for me, even if we were the last person on earth. That He intentionally desired to come down and do this, to suffer, to sacrifice himself in this particular way, even though he could have rescued himself. Even though he shows his experience of humanity, asking God three times, if there's any other way, but if not, let your will be done. Showing that he knew exactly what it was he came to do, and he fulfilled that mission faithfully. For you, for me, even though our sins put him on the cross. It wasn't the Jews collectively who sacrificed him or just the Jewish leadership at that time. It was all of us. Every time we sin, every time We have an experience of our human brokenness. That's what the church teaches. That is what put him on the cross. That's what necessitated him to do what he did on our behalf. And that, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful gift, an incredible thing to make sure that we remember time and time again as we enter into this holiest of weeks next week. And we hear this proclaimed this Sunday, and if you come on Good Friday, you'll hear it, uh, the account from the Gospel of John, I believe, to be reminded of how much God loves you, that he would do this for you that he has had this rescue operation for humanity in the work since the beginning and has shown us glimpses of it throughout salvation history so that we would recognize it when it happens, so that it wouldn't seem like some brand new crazy thing, but every faithful Jew reading this would see, oh, I see what was happening there. That's the Passover, but it's different. It's new. That's like a covenant, an Old Testament temple sacrifice, a Todah offering, but it's new. It's what's been promised all along. It's the promises of Isaiah and the prophecies of the suffering servant. It's the prophecies in Daniel chapter 12 that says the tombs will be opened and the dead will be raised. The prophecies about one who gets spit on, whose uh, whose, uh, garments are cast lots for and undivided, who stands there in silence though he is accused. All these things show up all throughout the prophets. In the prophet Amos, that the sun would be darkened. In the prophet Zephaniah, that for 30 pieces of silver someone would be betrayed. In Isaiah, that that betrayer would share a meal with the suffering servant, something that was considered so intimate, table fellowship, that that betrayal would be so, so hurtful. That is the importance of this, brothers and sisters, and that you and I recognize our role in it. Because the thing that always stands out to me in this, anytime I read the Passion account, especially this account from the Gospel of Matthew, is that when Jesus tells them that someone is going to betray them, And all of them say, it's not me, right? Because all of them know it could be. All of them wonder if it is them. Don't you think Peter, after he denied Jesus three times, thought, I must be the guy he was talking about? 
I must be the guy that Jesus just said at the Last Supper was going to betray him. I have completely and totally failed him. And every single one of them leaves. Every single one of them in this account is gone. Because they believe, they see the capability that they have of being the one to betray. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have to recognize we have that same capability. And we do it every day when we turn away from God, when we don't act with charity, when we fall into sin. And that's, I'm not, I don't say that to condemn you. I'm with, I'm with you in that. I don't want us to feel that condemnation. I want us to see that despite all of that, Jesus loves you and I so much that he did this so that no matter how often you and I turn away, we have a path back home. We know that he is out to rescue us, to save us, no matter what we do. We simply receive that gift and respond in faith as best we can. So all of that being said, any other things stand out to you? Any questions you have about this reading? Yes, sir. Uh, what is the symbolism of putting the scarlet military cloak on before his like, actual clothes? Yeah, so in, in one sense, they are mocking him. They're making him to be like this fake king. Um, and scarlet is a very rare color. Scarlet was very expensive to make. Um, it's, scarlet is sometimes translated as violet or purple. Um, there was Phoenician red and then uh, Tyrolean purple. They come from the same region of Tyre and Sidon. And there's a really cool, fascinating way this was made. But you basically, there's these giant spiky sea slugs that you would fish for in the ocean and you would smash them and this purple mucus would come out. And you would use that to dye fabric. And it had this really beautiful property that the more you washed it, the deeper purple it would become. And so it's very valuable, very expensive. And only the most wealthy and luxurious people owned this. And so by putting this on Jesus, they're not only mocking him, but they're also ironically clothing him with the dignity and royalty that he is due, even though they don't recognize it. And so a cool little historical fact is if you ever look up, there's like, I think they're called like Tyrolean sea snails or something. I mean, they look like something out of like a death metal music video. They got spikes all over them. They're like this big. And it's like, it was like uh, uh, controlled how many of them you could fish or harvest at once. Like 2000 years ago, they had this like whole market of sea slugs just to make the color purple. It was just some random weird historical thing. But all of that to show how luxurious and rare this type of color was. And so it sometimes translates to to scarlet or red, but both of which were very difficult colors to dye at that time. Only the wealthiest had them. Yes, Baron. That's actually why uh, Novoa National Flag is purple and only the uh, Second Spanish Republic is purple. On the flag. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, Fun fact. And then Phoenicia was the only place in the world where it Yeah. <laughs> they, had, they had a trademark on purple for thousands of years. <laughs> Yes, sir. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so usually the revolutionary's name is just, we just hear Barabbas in the other accounts. But often there are, people have multiple names, and Jesus was a very common name, so you'd usually have a surname or a nickname. And ironically, Jesus Barabbas means Jesus, son of the father, in Aramaic. And so it's as if this person, Jesus is taking his place, showing that like Jesus, son of the father, is who he is, and that they're trading this kind of uh, imposter or uh, placeholder for the person who really is the son of the father. Just like Jesus takes our place. Like we deserve the punishment for our sins. We deserve, um, you know, like the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. Uh, and so we deserve that. And yet Jesus takes our place, even though we are all the revolutionary. We are all sons and daughters of the father. We are all his beloved. 
Jesus itself means God saves. So God saves son of the father or God saves daughter of the father. That's true of all of us. God saves us. We're all sons and daughters of the father by virtue of our baptism. And yet Jesus comes and takes our place, even though we are the ones who are guilty and he is the one who is innocent. Yes? Is, when, when he's kind of face to face with the, I believe it's the high priest, and he, he says, you know, in the, you know, in the name of the living God, are you the Messiah? Mm-hmm. Is his response an affirmation of that? Is, you know, you have said it or something? I, I can't find the actual. Yes, it's in verse, um, what is this, 26, verse 64. Yeah, you have said so? Yeah, so he says, you have said so. So what he's basically saying in that first part is that what they are asking for, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He clearly sees what he is coming to do. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But they're asking about some other image they have. You know, this victorious King David figure who's going to overthrow Rome. So what he says is like, you say so. But then he invokes that he is the Son of Man. He invokes that title that he always invokes for himself, which is from Daniel chapter 7, which is the apocalyptic figure that comes on the clouds and ushers in the new messianic age. And so he affirms it, but in the way that is true to who he wants to come and and, and tell them the Messiah really is. So he kind of pushes aside their title-oriented Messiah that has all the political attachments, and he affirms it in his own way. Yeah? Why is it that Christ acting as high priest in this way, that he isn't of the Levite line, he's of like a non-priestly line? doing this. Have you ever, like, do you know much about that? Because I've heard that explained. I was reading today in Genesis, like, little, like, prefigurements early on of what Christ will do, how mm-hmm. Judah says to, he doesn't know it's Joseph, he thinks it's just some guy. Yes. I'll say, if you take Benjamin back, I'll be your slave if you guys need further proof. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how Christ comes from Judah, who is isn't priestly. It's not a Levite. Why do you think that is? Why not have the high priest come from that line? Why some other laws? And a son of Jacob is kind of random, too. He's not Joseph. He's not the oldest. He's not the youngest. He's the son of Leah, who wasn't supposed to be Jacob's wife. Why is that? There's a lot of historical things attached to, like, the 12 sons of Joseph, but Judah was always the one. Judah means praise. And he basically supplants his three older brothers because of, you know, two of them are involved in intervening when their sister Dinah is raped in a very violent way. And so he ends up being like the favored son, just like Jacob supplants Esau and Isaac supplants Ishmael and so forth. And so Judah is the one who always leads forth the army of Israel through the desert. Judah is the one who gets this favored land of the southern area of Judah uh, and so he is like this kind of the, the, the lion of Judah, this prophesied figure from that tribe. However, the Levitical line does come to Jesus through Mary and through her family because her cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, they're of the tribe of Levi because he is a high priest. And so most scholars say that that's probably where he gets that high priestly lineage. He's authentic to the Old Testament and he is this um, prophesied individual in the tribe of Judah. Yeah. Yes, and that lineage of his tribal uh, ancestry to Judah comes from Joseph, which is why Joseph's lineage is so important as well. Yes. Yeah, Joe. So the whole time, uh, at least in this account, Matthew is saying, like, oh, this happened, so this fulfills this prophecy, this happens, fulfills this prophecy. He says that a couple of times. Mm -hmm. 
is it reasonable to assume that like some of the some of the priests were watching this and they were like, oh, maybe we messed up. Maybe this guy is really what he says he is. Mm-hmm. There is, is it in this account or maybe it's in another one, but there is a a reference to the fact in one of the the gospel accounts of the Passion that many of the elders who were even present at Jesus' arrest and his trial believed in Jesus but were unwilling to expose themselves out of fear of ramifications from the rest of the Sanhedrin. I don't know if it's in this gospel account. It might be in John that we're going to hear on on Good Friday, Uh, but it's in one of them. So that's partially it. And we know that Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and others who were part of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership were secret disciples of Jesus. Um, So I think they saw and put all those together. The problem is among the Pharisaic Jews and all of those who had learned you know, from their different rabbis, certain rabbis emphasize certain sets of teachings and prophecies. Certain rabbis emphasize a certain image of the Messiah. And so if you're solely tunnel vision and focused on that one thing, it's easy to kind of ignore all the rest. You know, it's easy to kind of let it all fall to the wayside. And we know now that, you know, in retrospect, these certain prophecies rise to the surface. But these are, you know, handfuls of lines among a dozen you know, plus prophets who have many other writings and prophecies. So I think it would be reasonable for them to maybe forget some of these or not them be the ones that were emphasized in their own education, the ones that they're expecting based on their rabbinical in- instruction, their own idea of who the Messiah is. So it's clear to us in retrospect, because we can go back and connect the dots, but um, it may not have been as clear for them and how expansive their education ended up being. You know, um, A lot of them were educated in the law of Moses. Um, They were meant to also be educated in the rest of the Old Testament, but that second stage of education also was now relearning their rabbi's interpretation of the Torah. So it was really Torah-heavy and Torah-focused, and then the prophets were there, but probably not as well memorized as the Torah. Yeah. Great question. Yes? Um, If Jesus knew what his purpose was, Mm -hmm. why did he actually lament in particular... Yeah, that's a great question. So Jesus is not lamenting there. He's quoting Psalm 22. So if you have, you know, uh, quickly want to turn in Psalm 22, the very first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help, from my cries of anguish? My God, I call by day, but you do not answer. By night, I have no relief. And so every Jewish person Jesus quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. This was the liturgical handbook and prayer manual of the Jewish people. Everybody knew it. It contained your annual prayers for feasts and pilgrimages. It contained all the prayers for temple sacrifices and traditions, all the prayers for synagogue worship. Everyone knew this book really well. And you would sing these songs. And I don't know if you've ever been around children or ever had to teach other people or teach children. When you learn something in a song, you pick it up like that. Like, if I want to teach my daughter something, I make a song out of it, and she will learn it so quickly. But if I just try and tell her, it will be thousands of times before she continues to ignore me and never learns it. And so, you know, if I can turn rules or things I want to instruct her in into a song, she'll get it. And the same thing is true for the Jewish people. So you have that, those first lines of Psalm 22, but then listen to what happens after those first two verses, starting in verse 4. It then shifts. It says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the glory of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out, and they escaped. In you they trusted, and were not disappointed. So for a faithful Jew hearing that, they would have known that's the beginning to a song that I know really well. 
and the lyrics, they get better. The lyrics point to a fact that we can trust in God, that he's faithful and that he has a plan that's at work. And so it, it's often interpreted by people that on the surface, oh, Jesus is doubting God. Or they might try and say, oh, this is Jesus's humanity at display. No, Jesus is quoting a psalm everybody knew to show that he knew exactly what was happening. It doesn't, you know, make us shy away from his pain and his human experience of the suffering, but it helps us know that even in that final moment, he was called to worship and he called those around him to worship. And even though that psalm starts doubtful, it ends victoriously. Yeah, great question. Yes, sir. Um, so, sort of just occurred to me, maybe off on this, but Golgotha being named after a place of the school, so Christ being sacrificed there is symbolic, of course, uniting the head to the body, the sacrifice that unites the head to the body of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other sort of maybe scriptural or maybe traditional significance uh, to Christ being crucified there or for the sacrifice taking place at Golgotha? Um, I, mean, I never thought about the analogy you just brought up, so my mind is like super excited about that. Um, but the other, uh, the other Old Testament tradition is that um, either on Golgotha or on Mount Zion was previously the region that was called Moriah, where Abraham came and uh, almost sacrificed his son Isaac. And what happens? The angel intervenes and produces a sacrifice, a ram, which is a sheep with horns, in a thicket, a crown of thorns, and that becomes the sacrifice to save his only son Isaac. And so even 2,000 years before this happens, in the exact same geographical place, God is showing that he already knows how this story is going to play out and end. And so that's, that's the only other historical significance I know to that place, but no other reference to it being the place of the skull outside of the Passion account. Yeah, great question. Matt? Um, I just had a question about when the um, temple was being torn. Yes, the veil in the temple. Yeah, after that, I, I never really noticed this, but it says like the saints were raised and um, after the resurrection of the holy city. Yeah. So did a bunch of dead people literally just go into the city? Yeah. Yeah, the zombie apocalypse just happened right there, you know? Um, and this is basically the equivalent of a bunch of Lazaruses. You know, so this isn't like a resurrection of a new body and new spirit. This is like a amplification of the miracles that have happened previous, like a resuscitation. Okay, so not like the resurrection of Jesus. Every every resurrection that Jesus performs of Jairus' daughter, of the widow's son of Nain, of Lazarus, and of these people is all technically a resuscitation. They come back to ordinary human life and they preach witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is, you know, crucified for our salvation, that he is, you know, to rise from the dead. At least these saints do. Uh, at least that's what historical tradition teaches. Um, so uh, we don't know who they were, what happened to them after. We don't know, have any historical reference to who they were. Um, we know that they certainly weren't patriarchs or anyone like well-known in the Old Testament, otherwise they would have been named. Um, but because they're called saints, we know they're probably believers either in their witness of their resurrection or in something that happened previous to that that led to their death. Um, but that's one key point in the Gospel of Matthew's account of the Passion that doesn't show up in any other one because it's trying to also show that Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of all of us. So that when that Todah offering is, is given, it's like also an offering of first fruits. You would offer this first fruit sacrifice of your harvest. As soon as the harvest came in, you'd get the best of it and you'd offer it to God. And so Jesus is like a symbol of that. He's the first fruits of humanity, the first one to actually fully resurrect from the dead by the power of God. 
And so he is in, he's ushering in the first fruits of that same thing being possible now for all of us. Yeah. Other, yes. Yeah, can I um, touch on that a little bit? So, yeah. I don't know if it's still off topic of this gospel, but you know, like in Revelation, it says, like, the dead will rise on the last day. Like, yes. There's like that like that misconception or like Protestants think of the rapture a little differently. Yes. Like, uh, okay, basically what I'm saying, can you touch on the Catholic point of view of the rapture, like how the devil um, be raised as Jesus comes, or like can you clarify that? Yeah. A little bit based on that. Yeah. So very quickly, the Protestant doctrine of the rapture comes from a verse in the scripture. I can't remember the citation offhand, but it's where, you know, one will be working in a field and the other will be taken up. One will be laying in bed and the other will be taken up. And this kind of sudden disappearance of people. Uh, when that kind of similar language shows up in Revelation, if you follow the timeline along, it's not those that are taken up who are faithful. It's eventually those that are left, who go through the tribulation and then who are saved. And so the Protestant doctrine of the rapture doesn't match, you know, that idea that they're going to be saved. The Catholic teaching of the afterlife is that when we die, we immediately go to Jesus for our judgment. And we are either ushered there by St. Michael the Archangel or our guardian angel. And that is called our particular judgment. The sins of our life are weighed. Uh, do not pass go. Do not collect $200 straight to wherever you're going to go based on your life. And you either go to hell or you go to heaven, usually through purgatory to be purified and made ready for heaven. But when that happens, that's only your soul. And at the end of time, when the second coming occurs, those who are still alive will be judged immediately. And all of us will then be rejoined to our resurrected bodies and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Those who are already condemned will stay condemned. Those who are already in heaven will stay in heaven. Those who are still alive will be judged and placed in those two places accordingly. Yes, well, there's no indication here that these are resurrected. Like, uh, these are not bodies that will be, like, resurrected in the sense will be resurrected on the last day. This is a sense that they just came back to ordinary life. Their body, there's no indication here that their bodies are supernatural, that their bodies are just like Lazarus's, the Jairus's daughter, all those people when they came back. Um, so that all that type of resurrection happens later. That is it for our time. We're actually over time because this passage is long and very fruitful. So if you have more questions, please, by all means, come up and ask after. I'm always happy to answer your questions. But let's uh, end together in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins for loving us enough so much that you would rather die than spend eternity without us. You paid a debt you did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. So help us to never forget that, to remember every time we look at a crucifix, every time we come together for the once and for all todah offering of the Eucharist, that we are celebrating a new Passover which you ushered in by your death so that we would be freed from slavery to sin and that we would be liberated to live with you new in the kingdom of heaven. Help us, Lord, to live in that truth and to never never traded away or settle for anything less. Let us reflect with deep reverence for the love you have for us and the sacrifice you made as we go throughout our week, and we prepare to hear this gospel passage proclaimed this Sunday. We pray and ask all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.